The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. My name's Jared. I am the young adult pastor here at Maranatha, and I'm covering stepping in tonight uh, to teach. We'll be taking a little break from Ezra. I'm excited to be with you guys tonight. I hope you had a great week. Just as I was singing that last song of of your goodness never fails, and and with all our lives, you know, that we can testify, we can see it. It just, it felt so powerful coming off of Easter week, where we saw so many lives given to Christ, where it was just such a powerful week of testifying of his grace and his love over us. I don't know about you guys, but it felt more at the surface level uh, singing that this week. So for me, that's how I felt. I'm excited to be with you guys tonight. Uh, So for tonight, uh, stepping out of Ezra, we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 10 at the the story of the Good Samaritan. So turn there with me to Luke chapter 10. Uh, We'll be in the second half of the chapter. And uh, we have so much to look at tonight. So I'm going to just jump right into it. So we're going to start by reading in verse 25, and we'll read the whole section of this story through verse 37, and then we'll pray. It says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, that him is Jesus. He tested Jesus saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. Verse 29, but he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem. Okay, so I transitioned quickly. Now he goes to the story. He says, who is my neighbor? Jesus transitions. Now we listen to this story in verse 30. He says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing. They wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked, and he also passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will come again and I will repay. So Jesus said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Verse 37, he responds by saying, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, your word speaks to us profoundly, continually, constantly, Lord. It's fresh and it's new each time we pick it up. Even a story like this that that for many of us, we've heard many times. 
And yet from that, Lord, you speak to us anew, afresh, individually, collectively, God. And so we come with anticipation for that, for you speaking, for your moving in your words power, uh, the power that it has to, to break off chains, to, uh, to bring us out, Lord God, to embolden and exhort us and encourage us. So God, we pray that your spirit would move. It would move as it does continually in your word going forward. And so bless this time, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I want to start tonight with a statement, okay? It's going to sound a little bit off. I fully expect that, and then I'll explain the statement. I'll, even, I'll give it to you a couple times, okay? So here's my statement. I used to think that our Christianity was like a destination vacation. Now I think it is more like a Big Sur trip. Okay, I'll explain, but let me say it again. I used to think that our Christianity was like a destination vacation. Now I think that it is more like a Big Sur trip. Okay, I love to travel. I know about you guys, that's one of the things that's been harder about this past year. I have been able to travel a little bit. And this is what I'm gonna reference here in a second. I love to travel, and I, I just love to get out and, and see new cultures, new food, the food, I love the food, always try and find the best food. I look for the best bakery first. I love the, finding a good hike. I love in, our, in the country, out of the country. I love to travel. And so when I travel, I tend to have a mentality of, I'm kind of also a competitive, get it done type person. And so when I travel, I want to get to the destination as fast as possible. I want to get there. I want to set up shop. I have plans. I have activities of what I want to do. I know where I want to end up, okay? And, uh, you know, I, I, I'll take a red-eye flight. I'll, I'll drive through the night. I'll wake up early to avoid traffic. I'm going to tell everyone to limit their, their drinks, their food, because we're not stopping, okay? We're going, okay? And, and something that happened recently is I had the opportunity to go on a trip to Big Sur about a month and a half ago. And on this trip to Big Sur, I realized that I needed to rework my perspective of how I approach a vacation, a road trip, when it comes to Big Sur, because it's not a destination, final, set up shop, you're there type of trip. It's a trip where you enjoy it throughout the process. Before we go on with that, I thought, I can't talk about Big Sur and not show you a few pictures. So I pulled up a few pictures for you guys. Uh, okay, photo credit on this one uh, goes to Mr. Daniel Bentley. Uh, he took that, we were out exploring. There's an otter kind of off over to the side. Big Sur is gorgeous. If you haven't been, you have to check it out. And the next one, I got a couple more. Uh, there's me and the wifey. She didn't know I was going to show this. I'm probably going to hear, why'd you pick that one? Uh, I think you look amazing, honey. Uh, so we went on this hike. There was co it was a hike of just cove, cove after cove after cove of gorgeous coves. Uh, so then I got another one of our kids. Uh, oh, look at that. Aren't they cute? Aren't they cute? Uh, they're out there. Uh, my daughter and Daniel's daughter. Uh, okay, next one. Oh, he's a kitty too. Uh, the Bigsby, Bigsby Bridge in the background, and then one more for you. Okay, there's the boys. We, had, we showed the girls, there's the boys. Uh, mine and Daniel's sons. Uh, okay, you can get the pictures off. Okay. Uh, just, if you're going to hear about Big Sur, you've got to see a few pictures of the trip. So we went to Big Sur, 
And like I said, I'm destination mentality. That's how I work. And yet with Big Sur, I had to rework my thinking because, because Big Sur isn't a spot that you just, you get to a final destination. Technically, actually, Big Sur is a small town in the midst of a whole area. But when people say Big Sur, it's a region is really what often they're referring to. It's, it's Morro Bay and North. And really, even beyond that, if you're doing the trip, it's, it's Santa Barbara and North. You're going to go to Santa Barbara. You're going to go through Lompoc. You're going to stop in Pismo Beach. There's some great cinnamon rolls there. I told you, I find the good food. Uh, you're going to go to Pismo Beach. You're going to go to... Um uh, what's the little town? Cambria is right there. And then you're going to stop and you're going to see the zebras over by Cambria. We were driving through and my son was like, there's zebras over there. We're like, okay, son. All right. And then we found out there really are zebras and we saw them. Uh, and then you're going to stop at, there's uh, elephant seals that fight each other. And just constantly, mile after mile after mile, there's something to stop at. And it's not a place that you just go and you're there. You stop constantly along the way. And for me, I realized, and I, I looked at this different kind of trip, and, and for me, I realized that this is really what I believe our Christianity is more so meant to be like. That in much of life, I, destinate, I, I approach with more of that destination mentality, and definitely in my Christianity, I tend to approach it with a destination mentality. And in really what I believe now more so than ever is that our, our walks with God, the way in which we go through this life as Christians is meant to be more of a big sur trip type mentality. That we're not looking for the place we're looking to go, whether that's spiritually, I need to get to this place before I can serve, do this, do that, or whether it's, it's an actual physical missions trip, or I, I do ministry here, or I, I'm striving to get to this place where I can teach in this location or have this opportunity. And, and it's not destination mentality. The, the walk, the love, the call that God has for us is to, is to just walk through life and look for constant spots to walk in the love of God, pouring that out upon people all around us. That it's to be someone who has eyes to see, ready to look at every single pull out and stop, not saying I'm waiting for the ministry to come there, or this is the framework of how I put my ministry in or how God calls me to love, but God calls me to love everyone, all Always, everywhere I go, and that I want to have that big sir mentality. And like I said, for me, this is something that I struggle with. That's, uh, that's why I'm teaching on this is because this is something that's just been constantly, God's been pouring into me. That I'm such a task-oriented person. I'm someone who will walk past 20 people to get to the one thing that I was sent to go grab. And God calls us to see every person, every individual, everything around us. The person, you know, who are the greatest, the, the most common people that we would walk past in life, right? The, the people maybe ringing us up, the person in the security line at, uh, at the airport. The, those are the people that he calls us to see them, to see that God has us to give his love to them. And so he calls us to be a people who have that, that mentality. And that's what I want to look at tonight in this text. It's a text that's often more so focused on who we're supposed to love, and we'll definitely talk about that. But I believe more so now than ever that it also speaks to how we're supposed to love. Stopping, being patient, being long-suffering, being willing to pay a price, get messy, spend time pouring into people. And so let's jump back in the text and then we'll, we'll work our way through it. Back to verse number 25. And it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him 
He tested Jesus. And now, uh, a lot of the commentators say it's not necessarily that he was trying to pin him down. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was just curious. But it says that he tested him. He, he, he had this challenging question saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a big one, right? Jesus responded with a question. This is always a great mentality. When someone's trying to pin you down, you turn it back on them, you ask them questions back. And so Jesus said back to him, what is written in the law? It referred to him as a lawyer. It meant that he was really an expert in religious law, in the, in the, in the laws of the Bible. So he turned it back to him. He says, well, well you say to me, uh, you know, what, what does it take to inherit eternal life? And I, and I just, I, I respond back to you what, what's written in the law. What is your reading of it? And so he answered him and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So he gives him this standard, the, the all-encompassing, the, the summary of the law, that all of the other laws fall under these two laws, that we're to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, strength, our mind, everything, and then our neighbor we're supposed to love in, as ourselves, that, that we should care for him in the same way that we care for ourselves. And so uh, Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Now what's interesting is he responds by saying, well, who is my neighbor? And I think in that, just, just even in this, in how Jesus responds, we, we begin by looking at in something that I am so in love with of who our Savior is, is that he's incredibly gracious here in his response to him. Jesus could have responded in a, a, a number of ways. This guy comes and says, how can I inherit eternal life? He responds by saying, what's in the law? He says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. And then Jesus says, do this. And the guy's response is, well, who's my neighbor? Now, by saying who's my neighbor, what he's implying is, I've got the first part, right? If he says, who's my neighbor, he's saying, okay, first part, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, got that covered. Now, for me, that's something I strive after. I would never say I've got that covered. That's, that's a constant battle to keep God on the throne in every aspect of my life. And so Jesus, in his response, I say that he's gracious, abundantly gracious, because he just skips past the part where the guy assumes that that's a given. That check, I've got that one covered. Jesus doesn't look to stop and say, let me deal with this little thing here. You actually, you're wrong about that one. You know, the guy makes it clear. I, he believes that he's loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So rather than focusing on that, Jesus is patient and gracious in his response to him. And I just love to be reminded that, about that, of who God is and how he works. That he's not looking to nitpick. He's not looking to point out every single thing right away, right? That he's the, the, a God who is gracious enough to take it one thing at a time, to deal with us where we're at and where our heart's at. He doesn't say, let me see the pile of sins and, and th obstacles in your lives and, and just say, here's the list, start working on them. He allows this guy to have the kind of false perspective of, okay, you, in your mind, you, you've checkmarked that first box. Let's go ahead and deal with this one that you wanted to discuss. And so for us, we can be encouraged that God deals with us where we're at. He's not going to give us the whole list all at once and say, finish this, go. Uh, but he's open. He's dealing with us where we're currently at in our lives. And then for others, I want to take that mentality of God. So often we're given his grace 
And he deals with us in just one thing at a time. And we're kind of like this guy where we think we've got everything else covered. This one thing is the only thing. This is the only thing I need to work on, you know? And yet then we look at other people and we're like, you really should fix all of these things, right? And that we should strive to have the heart of God. Let's just speak to this thing that God's putting on your heart. Let's just say, what is, the, what is the individual, the thing that God's been moving and showing you working in, and let's just pray over that. Let's not look to, to have a new believer come in or, or a friend come in and just give them a list, but say, what's God been showing you? Let's work on the, let God do the work in their lives that are the individual, the things that, that just moment by moment that he's, he's showing them, that he's working on. And so we see that here, that Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 you really think that you've loved me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you know, that you've loved God with, that way? He says, okay, let's, let's deal with this neighbor thing. So in verse 29, uh, going back to that, just even in ha- him asking the question, so Jesus said to him, you know, do that, and he says, but wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And I think it's so fascinating, this desire to justify ourselves, uh, that wanting to give himself an excuse or, or reason why he could maybe say that he had done what Jesus had just told him he had to do. He says, well, let me justify myself. Let me, get, let me come at this from an angle to where I can feel okay with what I've done and who I am and how I'm approaching this. He wants to justify himself. And it's just, to me, it's always been so fascinating. I feel that we as humans all have advanced level degrees in justifying ourselves. We all have gotten masters and some of us PhDs in how to justify our actions and our approaches. That we're able to look at situations and we can justify how we responded, right? I do it nowhere more than on the road, right? That kind of even referring back to to how we look at people versus how God looks at us than how we respond looking back at people. On the road, I'm driving and when someone else does something, I'm like, what were they thinking? You know, this and that. And for myself, I'm like, Well, you see, the reason is I had this going on, this was going on, I'm actually in the right, they're in the wrong, right? And we just, we can, in any stinking moment, we can come up with a reason why we were not at fault for what happened, why we get an exception in the situation, and we can justify, we can justify, we can justify. And for this guy, he comes to Jesus and he says, well, who is my neighbor? Let me come at this, figure this out. How do I love them? Who do I love? What's my approach here? You know, the priest and the Levite, surely as we get to them in a second, they're going to have reasons why they justified walking past the injured man. They came up with reasons of, well, he's gross. I'm going somewhere. I'm going to serve 100 people. Should I stop for this one person? You tell me which is more important, right? They would be justifying in their minds how and when they should respond. In our own justifying, I'm not ready yet, Lord. Uh, It's not my gift. It's someone else's gift. I'm too busy. You know, the thing I'm going to, that's really important, right? And so we can always justify the reason why we do or don't do, God's law, the things he's called us to, why we put it off, why we say not right now. And yet Jesus responds to his justifying, well, who is my neighbor? And he responds by calling him to include everyone, to broaden his perspective, to remove any ability to justify. He's going to go to the most extreme level with a Samaritan to say, there's no justifying. It's that I have called you to love everybody always. And so in verse 30, he goes on to say, 
Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among the thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. So this is a famous road, Jerusalem to Jericho. It is well known. Uh, some would even say, and perhaps this was the Levites and priests' justification for not helping him, was that it, it, he was being foolhardy by traveling this road by himself that it was incredibly dangerous. You were supposed to do it with a, a, a number of people to help uh, yourself have protection, uh, a higher potential for safety in your travels. And so he traveled this road, whoever this was, this man of the story, uh, by himself. And in doing so, he was attacked. He was left for dead. All of his stuff was stolen. And then we come to verse 31, where it says, by chance. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, we, we pause there. We're assuming he's going to help him, right? It's a priest. It's a religious leader. He's someone who knows the word of God. He's someone who's supposed to live the word of God. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked. And again, the Levite, surely the Levite, he's also a religious leader. He's also someone that would be highly respected, revered, esteemed for his understanding of scripture. Surely he would help him. And again, he does not help him. And so when he arrived and came and looked, he also passed by on the other side. So obviously, this is a story that Jesus is telling. Jesus knew exactly where he was going with this story. It, uh, of course, it was not an accident that he told this story exactly as he did with both of these two people coming by, coming by to see this man laying there on the ground, right? Because the lawyer comes to Jesus. He's a religious expert in the law. He knows the word of God. And so he says, who is my neighbor? And so really, he, he then gives this story with two people who would have been essentially almost like peers of this, of this lawyer. People who would have known scripture, who would have known what they were called to, would have known what God wanted from them. And he says, these people are passing by. And they know who God is. They know his compassion and his love. They know the story of, of Jonah where God was abundantly compassionate. They know that God held back his judgment many different times. That God called people to great acts of love and compassion. And they, instead of helping, they went by. They were religious, yes, they were incredibly religious. They were the most esteemed of religious people around, and yet they were not willing to stop and to help this person. So as he's telling this story to this lawyer, he, they hear of, of these first two examples of people who come by, and they are not walking in the religion that God has called us to. And so jumping to another text real quick, James speaks of this, of this well, this idea of religion that's void of, of action, religion that doesn't line up with then following our, uh, the love that God calls us into. And so James uh, chapter 1 verse 22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Like this lawyer and this priest and this Levite who, who knew God's word, and yet they, they, were, they weren't willing to stop. Again, reasons probably aplenty, but they were doers. They, they heard the word, but they didn't act upon it. And so it said, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. 
You see, we must be sure not to just listen, not to just know, not just to memorize. We must be sure to respond. He compares it to a man who looks in a mirror, to someone who sees what's going on in the mirror and does nothing about it, right? I, I, remember, I remember when I first realized I was going bald. Uh, I'm bald, did you not notice? Okay. Um, I remember when I was first going bald. I was 21. Uh, I know, it's young. Uh, and, uh, and I was starting to grow my hair out for our wedding because uh, I would buzz my head when I lived in the Midwest. You put a beanie on and off, anyone? No, and it messes up your hair. When I had hair, that was something I had to think about. And, uh, and I remember looking in the mirror and just once I noticed it and my first response was to start to push my hair in a certain direction. And then I said, never again. So what I'm telling you is I honored this scripture immediately. I shaved my head immediately. I didn't look in the mirror and go away and forget. I called up my fiance and told her, you're going to have a bald husband at the wedding ceremony. She handled it fine. My mom, not so well. Uh, she was very upset about the lack of hair I was going to have at our wedding. But So don't look in the mirror and just forget. Don't look at the scripture, what God calls us to, and then go on as if you didn't see what was right in front of you. You didn't see the, the thinning hair. You didn't see whatever it was. Don't look and go on as if there was nothing to act upon. And then it goes on in this text. It says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. These religious leaders of the day had learned, learned, learned. They had memorized. They had, they had passed the test. They had achieved every achievement they needed to, to have their religious stature. And yet Jesus uses them as an example that their religious stature meant nothing when the moment came where they did not walk in the religion that they had been brought up in. We should learn God's word. We should study to show ourselves approved. We should, we should seek to know him. That's the, the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Know him. But then he tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. That we shouldn't stop at just knowing him. We shouldn't just be bodybuilder Christians. Pastor Sean uses this story that I've heard of him. He's probably used it here before on a Wednesday. But of a bodybuilder who lifted weights, lifted weights, lifted weights, was constantly trying to lift weights. And a week before a competition, he, uh, his mom asked him to help him move. And he told her, I can't help you move, mom. What if I tweak my back or something and I can't go out and flex and win the competition, you know? And it just hit him all of a sudden. Why am I building up all of these muscles just to look at and not to help my mom lift something, actually use the muscles? And that's what I think we at times can fall to, is that we can be so about building up our spiritual lives, which is incredibly good and absolutely what we should be doing, but without then putting those muscles into action. 
That we need to be a people who are doers of the word, who walk in what God calls us to. That it's not something that we just build to build for building's sake, but we build so that we can go out. That we apply the scripture that God has given us. We want to be a people who our theology is about loving people the way Jesus loved people. That we want to go and love people. We want to be a people who walk in that love, not learn about that love, not just receive that love, but respond to that love by loving those all around us. And so we want to be like the Samaritan, who in verse 33, but a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was, and when he saw him, and again, the listener would at this point, with a priest, with a Levite, surely they're going to stop. At this point, as he saw him, the listener is thinking maybe he's going to kick him. You know, maybe he's going to rifle through to see if anything was left behind. But the Samaritan instead, the Samaritans who were supposed to despise the Jews, they were considered kind of, the Jews called them half-breeds. The Jews said of the, of the Samaritans that if they, if they were having a baby, if you came upon a Samaritan woman having a baby uh, along the side of the road, you were not supposed to help her because you would only be bringing another Samaritan into the world, right? That they were not people that liked each other at all. That's why it was dangerous for a Jew even to travel in anywhere near Samaria. And so they get to this point where the priests, the Levite, the religious people who knew everything of who God was, they didn't act upon who God had called us to be, what God's love had showed them. But then the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, which sounds a little weird, pouring on wine. Why are you pouring? But, you know, the alcohol in it, you know, uh, with the wounds. I don't know. You guys get it. Um, uh, you know, uh, what's it called? It, like, um, you know, that sanitizes it. And uh, then the oil was probably more just if it's dried out or something. I don't know. It made it feel better. Uh, and, uh, and so he had compassion. He cared for him. He brought him to an inn on his own animal. He took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out some money. He gave it to them. He said, if there's any more, let me know. I'll pay more. So we have the response of someone who walked in the love of the Father, who showed the love that God has for us to this person. His response was to, to live it out, right? And that is what we're called to. Like I said, I used to think of this story as primarily about who we're supposed to love. And definitely, we look at that with the Samaritan. That he loved this person who was 100% not his neighbor. We are supposed to love absolutely everybody. But for me, in this living and active scripture that I read and continually am amazed by, as I more recently pondered upon this text, I was blown away more so with how he loved this man, this wounded man. How he went to such great lengths to not just love someone you wouldn't expect him to love, but the, the, the abundance of actions that he took to show him this great love. And so let's kind of head towards the end of our time with looking at four ways in which he showed love that God calls us to show love. So the first one is the good Samaritan, he gave his time. He gave his time. He inconvenienced himself to stop and to love this man in a way that, it, that just took away from his day. He had plans. Whatever his plans were, they were now gone. And I'm someone, like I said, I love plans. I love having plans. I make plans because I want to have the best day possible, right? I don't want to just kind of figure out as I go if I have a plan. I can adapt. I can be uh, you know, spontaneous. But if I plan, 
I can do even more, okay? And so <laughs> as I have my plans, it's so incredibly difficult to stop. It's such a challenge to not just think I had somewhere I was going. For some of you guys, my friend Hillary here, you're going wherever the wind takes you, you know? You're going to see a dandelion. You're going to stop and pick that dandelion. It's easier for people like you to stop and to love people. It's hard for me because I always have somewhere I'm going. There's never a moment where I don't have four things I'm headed to, okay? Uh, but he loved him with his time. It's an incredible way for us to love someone. I am so amazed by the great poet scholar, uh, Mr. Rogers. Uh, have you guys heard of Mr. Rogers? Have you seen the movie? What was it called? Uh, uh, neighbor, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Whatever. Is that it? Okay. Uh, it just so displayed his willingness to stop with every single person who came across his path. And there's a story that I heard on, on the radio about, um, about how a, a guy called in the radio. He was a coworker, someone who just, he was a nobody. He wasn't someone who, who Mr. Rogers should have cared about. And yet his son came to work that day with him, and he just thought, Mr. Rogers is really nice. Maybe I'll swing by. Maybe we'll just get a quick autograph. Maybe we'll take a quick picture. Um, and so he went by Mr. Rogers' office. He knocked on the door. They opened the door, and, and he just peeked in. He's like, oh, no, he's on the phone. And Mr. Rogers didn't know who this guy was, definitely didn't know who his kid was. He immediately says to the person on the phone, oh, I'm so sorry. Someone incredibly important just walked in. I need to take a moment. Uh, can I call you back another time? And he stopped and he spent an hour with this kid and just loved on him. One of the things that you always hear about him was that in his mind, the most important person in the world was who, whoever was right in front of him. I'm terrible at that. I'm so bad at that. And yet this is the love that we are called to have, is to be a people who love people with our time who stop and say, you are worth me looking at, caring about, hearing about, uh, investing in you with, with giving you my attention, my concern, my care for where you're at and what you're going through. And so the Good Samaritan, he was willing to give his time. Secondly, I just want us to draw from the fact that the Good Samaritan, he was willing to pay a price. He's willing to pay uh, both a physical, tangible two denarii, the scripture says, but he's willing to pay the price of, of just being with this person, this person who, who he wasn't supposed to love. He was willing to give of himself. It's going to cost us something when we love someone. We know that from our children, right? It costs us stuff. We were, I was just talking about with some friends at lunch today about owning a dog, okay? Owning a dog, great. Dogs are great. I'm a dog guy. Don't get mad. Um, but they inconvenience you. You have to come home early. You have these different difficulties that you have to go through to own a dog. You have to make sure that you have it taken care of, the shedding, oh, the shedding. Uh, and, uh, and so with a dog, it's like, OK, count the cost. Do I own a dog or not? It's going to cost you something. But with your kids, they do all those same things. But of course, it's worth it. You love them. You know, you care for them so much. And so you count the cost. You love them. It costs you something. It costs you your evenings. It costs you some of your Pop-Tarts when you go and there's more gone than you thought there should be. It costs you something when you have kids. And yet, it's so incredibly worth it because you love them. And the love that God calls us to for everyone, always, all around us, it's meant to cost us something. 
Like the Good Samaritan, we should have that heart to where we're willing to not just love people when it's most convenient or when it's cheap for us, but we're willing to pay something in how it costs us. The Good Samaritan next, he loved without limitations. And this speaks to kind of the classic way of looking at this text, which is that, that he said, who is my neighbor? And the Samaritan was not concerned with the fact that this person despised him, that this person was someone who would not probably have given him the same treatment if he was injured on the side of the road, because Jewish people would most likely not care for a Samaritan in this way. And so he loved in a way that he was not concerned with, how would this person care for me? Would this person care for me at all? Is this person my neighbor? He was not stopping to tabulate, is this someone that I ought to care about, that I'm expected to care about? Is it my responsibility? No, he loved without limitations. He loved this person who came across. And so the fourth one is the Good Samaritan was not afraid to get his hands dirty. He was not afraid to get messy. And I mean that both literally and metaphorically. Literally, he got dirty. He probably got some sweat on him. He probably got some blood on him. He, he, got, he just probably destroyed his clothes as he went through the process of getting this incredibly injured, messed up person onto a donkey. And then instead of riding on his own donkey, walking alongside, he got literally messy. But then metaphorically, he wasn't afraid to get messy also. He wasn't afraid that people were going to look at him, that he was going to be judged. He wasn't afraid that there was going to be maybe an emotional aspect to it, that it was going to be something that could bring him sadness, difficulty, pain, that, that what scripture calls us to and how we're supposed to love other people, it says with patience, with kindness, with humility, it says with long suffering, being, being willing to emotionally go through difficult things with other people. It gets messy when we love people the way that God calls us to. Being willing to, to, for me, a hard one, put their number in my phone. I don't know why, but I'm a little particular about putting numbers in my phone. I don't want to just fill up my phone with tons of numbers. Being willing to give them my phone number, my personal cell phone number, it gets messy. Inviting them into your house, having them around, and then like boundaries, and then what time are they going to leave? I didn't mean that for any of my growth group members who are here. I want you to stay every Friday till 10.30. But, uh, but it gets messy living your life together. Some of them stay so late. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm joking. It, it gets messy to love people the way that God calls us to love them. And it says, though, that that's how we love long-suffering, patient, kind. That those are the ways that we go there with people. So God calls us to love people, yes, in a way that we might physically get messy, but then metaphorically, it's not going to be clean. We've, some of us have loved people, and it's gotten messy, and we thought, I did it wrong. That wasn't how it was supposed to go. Maybe I'm not supposed to love in that way. Maybe I'm supposed to try it differently or get better at it so it doesn't get so, uh, you know, and, and boundaries. And yes, we should have good boundaries, but we, we establish maybe too many boundaries because we don't want it to get messy again. And I promise you, it got messy for Jesus. It got messy for his disciples. Every time they walked in the love that God had them, dealing with James and John and Peter, dealing with all of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, it got messy. The love that God calls us to, it's not going to be the cleanest cut thing. It's going to involve us at times putting ourselves in situations to where, oh, this move took longer than I expected. My day kind of got derailed. Uh, my family, uh, we ran out of food as we invited these people over for dinner because more people came than we expected. Right? It's going to get messy. 
And that's not a bad thing because God's love shines incredibly powerfully even through the mess. And so we are called to love as the good Samaritan, to have a love that goes far beyond, far beyond just who, but to how we're to love in layer upon layer upon layer, to walk in what God has called us to. Let me close with this story. Uh, There's a short story that I love from uh, Leo Tolstoy. Uh, He told a story of, um, of a cobbler. Uh, a cobbler who was, in the story, a pretty new believer and who just fell in love with God, was, was reading the scriptures day after day after day, saying, God, I want to know you more. I want more of you in my life. And as the cobbler did this, he, he had this workbench that he worked at uh, where he'd work on his shoes and there was a window kind of right in front of him. It was a, it was a great setup for him as the cobbler because the window was at foot level to the street. Because as you came into his cobbler's shop, you know, you had to go down a few stairs, but not a full staircase, a half staircase. So it left him looking out his window at shoe level, which as a cobbler, he could just see his handiwork going by in the town, right? So he'd sit at his desk, he'd read during his lunch, he'd read before his day started, he'd read when he was done cobbling for the day or whatever it was. And, uh, and he would just wanted to know more of God. So one night he fell asleep face down in the Bible, and God came to him in a dream. And he said to him, tomorrow I'm going to show you myself. I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to show you my goodness, my grace, my power. And that next morning as he woke up face out of the Bible, brushing some drool off the pages, he was incredibly excited. God was going to show him who he was. He was going to reveal himself to him. So he went through his day with his, you know, doing his cobbling, but he got less work done that day because he was just constantly looking out his window. God, where are you? Show me you, right? And so he was a cobbler. Tolstoy was Russian. It was Russian weather. Uh, There was snow flurrying around. And as he sat at his desk working, looking for God, he, he happened to see an old man going by. This old man was a guy in the neighborhood who didn't have much money. He would pick up little odd jobs, and he was shoveling. And, and so he knew this man, and by why he was doing this was because he needed a little extra money to, to make ends meet. And, and he was struggling with his shoveling. And so he, he put down his tools. He, he, he set aside his looking for God for the moment. And he went out, and he helped this man finish his shoveling job. They got done a lot faster with the two of them. And immediately he came back and said, OK, I hope I didn't miss him. Still looking for God to reveal himself, got back to his cobbling. Well, a little while later, it's incredibly cold out, as I said, with the snow. And he sees a, a young mom go by with her child, clearly with not enough clothes on. And he just he has to stop again. He, oh, this, this woman needs his help. And he brings her inside. He gives her some food, allows her to warm by the fire. He goes and finds some old coats. He covers her up. He sends her on his way, her on her way. Uh, the third story, he says, is at the end of the gate day, he's getting a little discouraged. He hasn't yet seen God revealed to him. And so he's just looking, looking, looking. And right in front of his window, he can't miss it, uh, there's a fight that starts to take place. Uh, a child had run by and tried to steal an apple from a, from a woman who was selling apples. And she snatched him by the wrist. And she's ready to swing at him, telling him he's going to be going to jail or whatever. And, and he runs out. He breaks up the fight. He asks the price. He pays the price. He talks to the kid. He talks to him about how he probably shouldn't be stealing her apples. You know, he offers him, maybe come back later. I'll give you some work to do. And he deals with this situation. And as he comes back into his house after this busy day, He's discouraged. He's like, God, where were you? 
you know? He gets down at the Bible, he starts reading, and he's kind of fighting because he's kind of upset. I didn't see you throughout the day. You promised me last night that you would reveal yourself to me, and I was definitely looking. Got distracted a few times, but I was looking. And he falls asleep again that night over his Bible, and God comes to him, and he says the same thing to him in in person in the dream. He says, God, where were you? And God says to him, I was with you all day. I showed you myself throughout your day. That in each and every one of those interactions, it was me and my love being displayed and revealed both through you, in you, and around you as you walked in the love that I have for you. As you revealed me in each of these interactions, as you displayed my grace and my goodness and my patience, my kindness, my long-suffering, he says it was, it was me being revealed throughout your day. You did see me. And so then Tolstoy ends with this scripture, Matthew 25, 35, saying, for I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. The love that God calls us to is a love for him. The very way in which we love our neighbors is in loving him, and the very way in which we love him is in loving our neighbors. They go hand in hand that he calls us to respond in all that we do, in all that he has done, to in loving every person around us. Not limiting who is our neighbor and not limiting how we will love those people as our neighbors. That we are to love with an unreserved manner, paying the price, getting messy, giving them our time, and walking through our days, not with that destination mentality of I've got somewhere to be, I've got a task to do, I've got a missions trip coming up, I've got to do this or that, but go through our day with that big sir mentality of every single step along the way, there is someone that God has me to love. Everywhere I go, there is ministry to walk in. Every person that I come across is someone that God died for and that I should love in a way that is profound, with time, with effort, with cost, with anything and everything I have to offer them. And so we want to walk in that love, God's love that is so incredibly profound towards us. Let's pray it in. God, you are so good. We are overwhelmed in your presence, Lord. Your patience and your kindness and your gentleness towards us, meeting us where we're at, pouring out, Lord God, your your sacrifice, your relationship, Lord. I pray, Lord, help us to see how you see. Break our heart for what breaks yours. Give us compassion and empathy. Lord God, give us sturdiness in that, Lord. But let us not hold back. I pray, Lord, fill us up with your spirit to see, to see every turnout, to see every spot that would be a prime location for stopping and loving with all that we are. Fill us up, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. 
Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.